This morning we return to John's Gospel, John chapter 6, and the Bread of Life Discourse. We remember that John chapter 6 begins with the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus miraculously divides loaves and fish and feeds this multitude of people. And then following that, the disciples, we remember, get into a boat and they cross the sea. And a storm comes upon them. And then Jesus comes to them walking on the water. The next day, the people come back to the place where the crowd had been fed, looking for Jesus. And when they discover he's not there, they too get in boats and cross the sea. And they find him. And that brings us to the bread of life. And last week, we were exhorted not to work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. And working, we learned, was not what we might think. Working is believing. It's believing in the one whom God has sent. It's believing that Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the all-satisfying treasure who will fill us for eternity. And so this morning we're going to pick up in John chapter 6 at verse 41. We're going to, going to read from verse 41 through verse 59. So if you would please stand in honor of God as we read his word together. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever." Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. You may be seated. 
Father, we thank you for your word. And our prayer is that you would give us hearts to understand this morning. That we may know Christ, your son, more fully. And that you would change us, make us more like Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. When we walked in this morning, we brought with us some things, knowingly or unknowingly, we brought with us some views, some opinions, some beliefs, some convictions, even some presuppositions. These things having been shaped by things that have happened in our past. Not bad things necessarily. In fact, much of what we do and believe is shaped by what we've seen modeled for us. And this can be a really good thing. For example, some of us, all of us, we have beliefs about work and stewardship. Perhaps some have been taught well growing up. Here's what work looks like. And so we enter the workplace or in our homes, we, we work with these beliefs about what work looks like. As an example, we could apply this to many areas of life. What does marriage look like? What do relationships look like? What is our purpose? We have convictions and beliefs, presuppositions. And when we come to the Bible, we bring these things with us. Again, this is not a bad thing. In fact, it's good that we presuppose when we come to the Scripture that the words that we read are without error and they're authoritative. The problem is not that we have presuppositions. The problem enters when we deny that they exist or we're unwilling to have our beliefs, our convictions, our opinions, our presuppositions challenged by the Scripture. So the challenge for us this morning is to not let familiarity rule, but to come to this text in humility, asking the Lord to grant us understanding. I believe the main point of this passage is this, Jesus is the bread who came down from heaven to give life to the world. Jesus is the bread who came down from heaven to give life to the world. And whoever eats of this bread will live forever. Jesus is the bread who came down from heaven to give life to the world. And whoever eats of this bread will live forever. The charge for us is to believe in and submit to Jesus Christ as he is revealed in Scripture. We begin in verse 41. And in verses 41 through 51, we see a skeptical question and a sovereign, life-giving response. Now, I recognize that there are two questions in verse 42, but we're going to focus on the second. A skeptical question. The reason the Jews were grumbling is because Jesus said he was the bread that came down from heaven. Their thinking went like this. We don't understand this. How can this man say that he's the bread that has come down from heaven? We know his parents. 
This is their skeptical question. Their question was wrapped in in man-centered skepticism. The Jews presupposed that because they knew Jesus' parents, there was absolutely no way that he could have come from heaven. They presupposed that because they couldn't understand how this might be possible, they presupposed that they couldn't understand it. They couldn't believe it, rather. And so they grumbled. In the same way that the children of Israel grumbled against Moses in the wilderness, so these people grumbled against the Lord. The Jews were so confident that they knew exactly who Jesus was that they found it impossible to accept his claims about himself. Namely, that he is the bread that came down from heaven to give life to the world and that whoever eats of this bread would live forever. So we hear this skeptical question. And now we must consider Jesus' sovereign, life-giving response. Notice that Jesus doesn't directly answer the question, at least in the way that we might think he would or should. Instead, Jesus gives a command. He says, do not grumble. We too should heed the command of our Lord. We shouldn't grumble, complain, or murmur as we contemplate what our Lord says here. The words that Jesus spoke may not have been that the, the words that the people wanted to hear and they grumbled. We must not grumble at what this verse and the verses following teach us lest we be identified with the people who grumbled against Moses and the people who grumbled against our Lord. Jesus says, do not grumble. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is a difficult passage. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This passage is difficult, yet our response must be one of humility, of meekness, of fear of the Lord. We must submit to Scripture. We must stand under the authority of the Scripture. Though our minds struggle to comprehend doctrines such as this, we must not reject them. This verse emphasizes the sovereignty of God in salvation. So what is emphasized in Scripture, we too must emphasize. But we don't do so to the neglect of the other passages in Scripture. Passages passages that speak of man's responsibility. Passages like John chapter 5 and verse 40 which says, Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. If the people would have come to Jesus, they they would have received life. But they refused to do so and were held responsible. Scripture teaches both. The absolute sovereignty of God and the full responsibility of man. Unless you repent 
you will all likewise perish. Emphasizing one, that is the sovereignty of God or man's responsibility, emphasizing one to the exclusion of the other leads to trouble and a mishandling of the word of God. None of us would say that we can fully comprehend this, can we? How can God be sovereign over every event in the universe, including the salvation of souls, and yet hold man absolutely responsible? But our inability to reconcile these, tr- these doctrines does not negate their truthfulness. Our abil- inability to reconcile these doctrines does not negate their truthfulness. We must affirm both and heed Jesus' instructions here. Do not grumble among yourselves. His sovereign response continues in verse 45. It is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. This verse comes from Isaiah 54 and verse 13. And in that passage, Isaiah speaks of a restored Jerusalem. The expansion of a flourishing people. A people upon whom the Lord has shown great compassion. And this description of restoration points forward to people of the new covenant. People in whom the Spirit, God himself, would come and take up residence. So this this picture of restored Jerusalem points, points forward to the kingdom of God. And it says, they will all be taught by God. And it seems to me that that the all here, the all here is clarified by these words, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father. In other words, the all refers to every person who has heard and learned from the Father. The words of Isaiah are coming to fulfillment. They're coming to fruition through Christ. What Jesus is saying here is that people hear and learn from the Father. The way they do this is not by seeing the Father, for no one has seen the Father except for the Son. Rather, those who hear and learn from the Father are those who hear and learn from the one who has seen the Father, who has been sent by the Father, who is standing in front of them, Jesus himself. What is the way to the Father? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Those who hear and learn are those who will receive life. Man is responsible to hear and learn and to believe. How is it that people hear and learn from the Father? They hear and learn from the Father by the Word. The Word incarnate. John says the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word. And those who would hear and believe Him are those who are taught by God. Today, We who hear the word of God, the scripture, and believe it are those who learn and are taught by God. This informs our ministries, doesn't it? 
all that we are doing must be word-centered. Must be word-centered. Our evangelism should be word-centered. Our parenting should be word-centered. When we counsel one another, it must be word-centered. So Jesus' response to this skeptical question is, is a sovereign response. God is sovereign in salvation, and yet man is responsible. So what do we do with this? Sometimes, sometimes we, we push back against the doctrine of God's sovereignty by asking, asking a question like this. Well, well, what difference does this make in my life? For one, this doctrine produces in us great humility. Great humility. We recognize the reason that we've been saved is because God has done a work in us. Having been the recipients of grace upon grace, we go and we minister grace and compassion to others. Understanding that God sought us out and drew us to Himself compels us to go to the ends of the earth and to seek people. To call them to repentance and faith. Second, this doctrine emboldens us to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ both here and to the ends of the earth. We realize that when a person is saved, it's not because we've spoken just the right words in just the right way. It's because God the Father in His kindness, in His compassion, is drawing people to Himself. This doctrine makes us zealous in our prayer life. We pray zealously knowing that God is able to soften the hardest heart. We plead with our Lord expectantly. Finally, this doctrine brings glory to God. Salvation is all of the Lord. He draws, enables, and saves Our confidence then lies not in man, but in our sovereign and good creator. This doctrine shouldn't scare us. It should give us courage. God's sovereignty produces humility, emboldens us to proclaim the good news, makes us zealous to pray, and gives glory to God. Jesus says, don't grumble. Don't grumble. Believe that I am who I say that I am. Not only is this response a sovereign one, but it's life-giving. Look at verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life, I am the bread of life. This repetition, truly, truly, signifies the importance of what Jesus was about to say. Very truly, I say. I tell you the solemn truth. What? Whoever believes has eternal life. 
Whoever believes has eternal life. And so we go and we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, believing this, that whoever puts their faith in Jesus will be saved. We have the best news in the world. People must believe that Jesus is the bread of life. People are responsible to believe. Jesus then contrasts himself as the bread of life with the manna that the Jews ate in the wilderness. This manna sustained you temporarily, your fathers, but they died. But the bread that I give will sustain you forever. You really don't want that manna that your fathers ate. Don't work for the food that perishes And then perhaps Jesus pointed him to himself when he said, This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. Verse 50. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. What's implied in this verse is that those who don't eat of this bread will die. They will die an eternal death. John frequently presents two alternatives. For example, in chapter 3 and verse 18, he says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. This is great comfort for the believer. There is great comfort for the believer. We won't die. Yes, we're going to die physically, but we will live spiritually forever. Therefore, we need not fear death. Only the believer can look death squarely in the face and not fear. Why? Why is Jesus' response a life-giving response? It's because Jesus says, I'm giving you the bread, the true bread, the bread that comes down from heaven, and the true bread is my flesh. It's me. And I give it for the life of the world. Jesus is going to give himself for the life of the world? We call this substitution. Substitutionary atonement. Jesus Christ taking my sins. And I receive his righteousness by faith so that I might live forever. Consider what Jesus is saying when he says he will give his flesh. He's speaking here about giving his life. I'm going to leave my father. I'm going to leave the glories of heaven and come down and dwell among people who hate me. 
I'm going to die so you don't have to. I'm going to pay the penalty that your sin requires so you don't have to pay it. I'm going to be beaten, spit upon, mocked, ridiculed, cursed, and forsaken for you. I'm going to bear the reproach, bear the shame, suffer the abandonment that you deserve so you don't have to. I'm going to take on myself the full punishment for your sins so you don't have to. I'm going to drink the cup of the wrath of the Father so you don't have to. I'm the bread that came down from heaven and I give life to the world. Do you believe? Do we understand the gravity, the weightiness of our sin? Do we understand that our sin against God is so putrid, so vile, so offensive that the penalty that it deserves could only be paid by the sinless Son of God if we are to be forgiven? This should land on us as a crushing weight. And then to think that Jesus bore our sins so that we might live strips us of all boasting. It fills us with praise and gratitude. It compels us to more faithful service. It moves us to unceasing worship. That God himself would take on flesh and bear our guilt and our shame so that we might live. This is the gospel. This is the gospel and we must live in it. We must never stray from the gospel. My hope is not based on my performance. It's based in the finished work of the sinless Son of God. This is why the believer can look death squarely in the face and not fear. Because Jesus has given himself and conquered death so that we might have life. And so it's right for us to ask this morning, what are we trusting in? What are you resting in this morning? Some of you need to hear the gentle words from the gentle shepherd. The gentle shepherd says, I love you. I gave myself for you. I gave myself to redeem you. You can trust me. I'll never leave you. I give you everlasting life. Others need to hear a word of warning from the lion of the tribe of Judah. And the warning is this. I am the bread of life. 
If you don't eat of me, you have no life in you. You have no life in you. None. The scripture says you will die in your sins and you will suffer eternal torment away from the presence of the Lord. There will be no relief from your suffering, no end to your agony because you rejected Christ. So we see a skeptical question asked, how can Jesus say he's come down from heaven? We see his sovereign, life-giving response. But the people to whom he spoke weren't united in the way that they received his words, and they begin to dispute among themselves. This leads to a confused question, a confused question and a shocking life-giving response. First, the confused question. The question the people ask is this, how can he give us his flesh to eat? This is a reasonable question, isn't it? How can he give us his flesh to eat? What follows then is a shocking response from Jesus. Again, he says, truly, truly, Remember, this highlights the importance of what he's about to say. Truly, truly, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This would have been extremely offensive language to the Jew. Eating flesh and drinking blood. The eating of blood was explicitly forbidden in the law. Jesus had already said that anyone who eats of the bread of his flesh would live forever, but now here he adds drinking his blood. This indeed was a shocking response. But it's not merely a shocking response, it's life-giving. How so? Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. What does Jesus mean by saying a person must eat his flesh and drink his blood? This is shocking and somewhat foreign language to us, but it's not completely foreign. Consider the words of Jeremiah the prophet. He said, your words were found and I ate them. Your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. The psalmist talks about the word being sweeter than honey in his mouth. So we understand Jesus is using figurative language here. He's speaking in a metaphorical way. But what does it mean? We begin to answer this question by considering what the result is for such a person who would do this. Eat his flesh and drink his blood. Look at verse 54. It says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood, the result for that person will be what? Eternal life. So our first clue in understanding what it means to eat and drink is that the result of doing so is eternal life. Now, has John given instruction elsewhere about what a person must do to receive eternal life? He has. Look at verse 47. Whoever believes has eternal life. 
Again in verse 40, whoever looks on the Son and believes in Him has eternal life. It's very interesting to note that verse 40 and verse 54 are very similar. We see parallel statements here in verse 40, looking and believing eternal life. Down in verse 54, eating and drinking equals eternal life. So I conclude that to eat the flesh of Jesus Christ and to drink his blood is to believe in him. We might say that believing is eating and drinking. Flesh and blood refers to all of a person. And Jesus is telling the people that unless they eat and drink all of him, they will not have life. Eating and drinking refers to to believing in Jesus, putting one's faith in Jesus in the most intimate way. When we eat and drink, we take something into our body. This is no casual belief, however. It's not enough to say that we believe that Jesus is a good man, a good teacher, a revolutionary, a miracle worker. We must confess that Jesus is the Messiah, the one sent from heaven, the one sent to redeem sinners, the one who lived a sinless, perfect life, and bore our shame, was crucified and buried and raised from the dead and conquered death. This is what we must believe. We must forsake our old ways. The Bible talks about this using words like repentance. We must forsake, we must turn, we must repent Let go of that thing that we're clinging to and put our full trust, our full hope in Jesus, the Messiah. Those who believe in him will have eternal life, life that never ends, life that will not be taken away. Jesus says that his flesh is true food and his blood is true drink. Nothing outside of Christ can fully satisfy No food, no drink, no relationship, no money, no power, no fame, no success, no pleasure, no possession, no children, no spouse. These things were never meant to fully satisfy. They were meant to be good things to point us to the one who alone can satisfy. The human heart is longing to be satisfied. Only by placing one's faith in Jesus Christ can one be forgiven of sins and be truly satisfied. Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven to give life to the world. And whoever believes in him will live forever. Christ will satisfy both now and for all eternity. He reminds us that he will raise us up on the last day. And in this phrase, we're reminded here of life in the present. That is, when a person is born again, we, we begin to experience life in the present. But there is more to come. There is life in eternity, for all eternity, with him. And so knowing this, that we will live forever, should, should loose us from the cords of this world and free us to devote our lives to the one who gave his life for us. Knowing that we will live forever gives us great courage and boldness to go and to do whatever it is the Lord calls us to do. Don't waste your life 
trying to gather up things that only last temporarily. Give yourself to the service of the king with whom you will live forever. This life-giving response from our Lord teaches us that teaches us that those who feed on his flesh and and drink on his blood continually, that they will abide in him and he will abide in them. It speaks of this union that every believer has with God himself. Jesus is the life giver. And by faith, we partake of his life. Those who ate the manna in the wilderness, they died. But those who eat of the true bread, the bread that comes down from heaven, will live forever. True life is to be found in him alone. When we began, we were challenged to believe in and submit to Jesus Christ as he is revealed in Scripture. We don't want to leave this place unchanged We ask the Lord to graciously open our eyes that we might see him more clearly. We don't want to commit the same mistake that the people to whom Jesus spoke committed. Because if you continue to read in John chapter 6, we learn that the people said, many of them said, this is a hard saying. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And it says they turned and walked with Christ no more. We don't want that to be true for us this morning. And so we plead for grace to see Jesus for who he truly is. Jesus is the bread that came down from heaven to give life to the world. We plead for grace to believe that whoever eats of this bread will have eternal life. Indeed, Jesus is the bread of life. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you are the bread of life. We thank you that you have made a way for us to be reconciled to God. And so we pray that you would give us faith to believe, hearts to understand, And we would give you glory in all that we do. Through Christ our Savior. Amen.